everybody. Welcome to this week's podcast. Uh, Peter and I are going to be getting back to our roots a little bit and discussing some hard sci-fi. We are going to discuss uh, Denis Villeneuve's 2016 film Arrival. Peter, welcome. Welcome. Um, you want to give a summary? This might be a little bit of a tricky one to summarize. You could either talk for two hours or two sentences. I think I've I think I've seen, have I seen this movie yet or did we not start? Have we done this podcast? You'll see. I think we're going to see this movie in a year or two, but we'll do the podcast first because it goes with the theme of the movie. Right. It's confusing, but you'll understand in a second. So this, this movie is, um, it starts out presenting itself one way and then the timeline of the movie changes and your appreciation of the order of events and the, subsequently sort of the rationale for the plot of the movie changes as the movie goes. But the plot, as you see it, when you're watching it through is that, um, the main character is, um, played by, uh, Amy Adams, again? Amy Adams, who looks kind of like Nicole Kidman to me, but sort of like a shorter, slightly yeah. more stocky version of Nicole. Kidman. Right. She's just like slightly shrunken. Um, she plays uh, Louise Banks, who's this uh, talented linguist who speaks multiple languages and writes books about linguistics and foreign languages and comprehension. And she she's a university lecturer and an academic. And she is apparently split up from her husband. And she's kind of looking back on the recent what seems to be the recent past where her daughter, who uh, was a teenager, has died of some kind of long Disease. illness. Yeah, some kind of, it sort of looks like, uh, you know, it looks like a, a cancer. You know, she, she ends up sort of in what looks like a hospice bed with... No hair. Right, she's hairless and she looks terrible. And it's really incredibly sad, the beginning. I mean, it's really, um, it's quite heartbreaking. Um, and then a bunch of aliens show up and much like other movies, including district nine, which is one of my faves, um, aliens show up all over the planet and there's 12 aliens and they show up in these seemingly random places and there, no one knows what's going on. The governments across the world are trying to figure out and interact with them. And the military shows up at a door in the face of, in the, the presence of Forrest Whitaker, who's the Colonel, and uh, in the army shows up and asks her to come help communicate with them. And she meets a physicist along the way who is, what's his character's name? Again? Jeremy Ian, Renner plays yeah, Jeremy, him. Ian Donnelly, right. Jeremy Renner plays him and they proceed to figure out how to communicate with the aliens. And then, and then things start to change. So as she's communicating with them, she starts to have dreams about the alien. She has a lot of flashbacks to her daughter at all ages, all different times. You never really see the her ex-husband, and you're not sort of sure if he's alive or not, I guess. Right. Did he die? Did they divorce? Yeah, it's unclear as the movie progresses. They hint that, that they divorced a couple times, but um, so the movie progresses, and eventually the aliens speak about a weapon and they're trying to figure out what are they doing here? How, why do they show up? Why do they come to earth? And the military is extremely sort of, sort of painted in a relatively one dimensional way. Um, 
as uh, just there to mitigate a threat. So they, uh, in the end, they figure out that the aliens have given them a language that they use, which is sort of a this circles, squiggly circles thing, but it also enables you to perceive things through time. So you don't, it's a nonlinear sort of presentation of time. And then you realize through that, that she, that Louise Banks um, has the whole movie sort of been seeing things in the future, in the present, all mixed together. And her daughter is not yet born her her daughter is 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 actually uh, her her husband is um, is the physicist played by Jeremy Renner in the future after the aliens leave, and she uses the future also to sort of avert a political military crisis and at that time, and then in the end you sort of she you figure out that her marriage broke up because she kind of let on that she knew her daughter was going to die. And, uh, in the end, she decides that sort of the end feeling or point of view of the movie is that, um, it's knowing everything past and future that's going to happen and having it almost experienced together, it's still worthwhile to do it. And I think that's sort of her, the place she sort of, she ends up in at the end of the movie. So she, there is a, interestingly, although it's nonlinear, <clears throat> if it were truly nonlinear, she might've just come to that conclusion at the beginning. And then the movie went over in two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not really nonlinear. They give you the impression of it being nonlinear, but she reaches, um, she reaches a, a denouement. Is that the right word? I guess not really. She reaches sort of a, a conclusion about life in the end. Yeah, the denouement is sort of the scene after the conclusion, I guess. Yeah, she reaches it, um, right. She reaches it as sort of a feeling about what is worthwhile in life at the end. And, and she comes to sort of be at peace with the fact that her husband is going to leave her and the kid is going to die. Like, this is all part of her life and, you know, it's all part and parcel. She can't really just cherry pick the good and the bad. It's all mixed in together and it's okay for her. Right. She She understands in the end what's been happening and you know there's an allegory right to everybody's life and in that there's mortality and whether you know it or not you know you should probably try to enjoy it the best way you can which is which is really easy to say and hard to do <laughs> right but you know it's like that great uh, i saw i had this you know internet headline sent to me like man goes to mexico um to kill himself spends a week, you know, doing cocaine and with hookers decides <laughs> to live. <laughs> oh. uh, um, Which was the first draft of this movie, actually, right. I think. Um, so, you know, you got to give them credit. Like they pulled off uh, a serious science fiction film that's ambitious and addresses a couple of uh, interesting questions. You know, how would humans arrive if aliens – so how, much, how would humans behave if aliens arrived on a grand scale around the world? Um, how would you try to interact with them? How would you interact with an alien intelligence that's completely different than yours? I thought one of the neat things is that their, their speech and their writing are totally different. Right. Uh, and they have to sort of realize that their spoken language and their written language are different. And I thought that the best gimmick in the movie was the actual writing. Like, I thought it just looked so different from what we've seen in film before. You know, their, their, their 
existence and thinking is nonlinear, so their sentences essentially have no beginning and no end. Everything is words inserted into a circle. Uh, I thought that was really, really clever. And the way that they never actually bothered to teach us the language, but you just got the sense that the humans were getting better at figuring it out, and they had you know, monitors where they could sort of assemble words and hold them up to the... Um, the aliens, the what do they call them? The septa, the heptapods, 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 uh, through the glass and communicate with them. Yeah, and they don't. don't they don't speak. You got to give them credit. It's you know, it, it's not. Uh, this is not Charlie Sheen's The Arrival. I don't know if you remember that one. I mean, this is uh, a more not. serious science fiction film. Which you know, we don't get a lot of real serious sci-fi. We get a lot of action sci-fi, which this is most definitely not. There's very little action in this movie. <laughs> This thing uh, makes 2001 feel like Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's, it's, you know, it's not like two hours and 50 minutes either. No, but it's a full two hours. Um, and you know, they like, don't spoon, the good, you know, they don't spoon feed you the way they're getting, drawing conclusions about the alien, the way they're learning to communicate. They just go ahead and, and do it, which is one of the things I liked. Um, they spoon feed you in the last act, though. They 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 kind of explain. They do a lot of explaining in the last act that they don't do in the the rest of the movie. Uh, so I would disagree a little bit there. You mean the way they they explain like the nonlinearity? Yeah, and the scene where she meets uh, General Shang, and like she has a vision of the book that she hasn't written yet, and she sort of in her head she reads a chapter from the book she hasn't written yet that teaches her how to read something. So, I mean, like, it gets a little bit more concrete in the last act, I thought. But, you know, they had to wrap it up. And, and I guess if they left it too obtuse and too abstract, they would lose too many people. Well, putting aside the paradoxical elements of that, right, with sure, learning from... It's a, it's a predestination paradox. Right. But, you know, leaving that aside, I think that that's the device that they show her actually learning and understanding what's become of her and how things are nonlinear. Because I think, you know, you, the way they do it, you get it a little before she does. Right. In other words, you're, you're going along for the ride. You sort of realize what's happening. Uh, they, they, ramp up the frequency of her flashbacks and the intensity of them. And then they start to get very, like you said, very illustrative. Uh, right. And they, flash bounce, forward, they bounce through more time periods quickly. Right. You start seeing the kid at different ages. Right. So you kind of figure it out, you know, like whatever, 10 minutes or something before she does. Um, but the process of her doing that is, is showing how she kind of figures it out. So I don't know. I didn't. I didn't think that it was really that spoon-fed in the sense that it's it's a plot element in a way because she, you know, she that they show her. You're right. I mean, like the scene with the general was right. That's the most concrete scene in the movie. Right. He shows her her phone, his phone number, so that she'll know it eighteen months previously. Right. And he, then he tells her the last words of his, that his wife says to him, which she then uses to gain his trust when she calls him in the past. Right. But that's what I mean. Like, that's very concrete. It is. But, you know, that, uh, but by then, the way, General Shang speaks perfect English. I was impressed. I know he speaks. <laughs> he has more dialogue than like half the people in the movie. <laughs> um, 
I do think I think the alien design is interesting. You know, I read that they wanted to make it feel like you were in the presence of a large sea animal, uh, sort of the way they swim around. Yeah. Uh, like even when she's in the tank with them, there's a bit where she's actually on the other side of the glass. Um, but you know, it's also it's a little hard to watch them for two hours in the sense that they're so different, they're so obtuse in terms of their actions. It, it's, I don't know, like it's it's interesting. I don't know if it was fun as I as I, sometimes I make that distinction. Like that's kind of how I feel about this movie globally. Like this was a really interesting movie. I don't know if it's a fun watch or you know. Well, I mean, a movie that starts out with a rather, um, really, really depressing um, death scene about her kid with flashbacks throughout the kid's life. I mean, it's just starting off on about the grimmest, no, I know, grimmest way you possibly can start out. But what? But what did you think about the way the heptapods looked? Um, I think it looked like a cross between an octopus, ET, and a tree. And a whale a little bit, too, I thought. It reminded me of a whale. Or a squid, like an octopus or a squid. Sometimes they... <laughs> yeah, it I mean, sort of had a sort of head-like thing on the top you saw at the end there. There's a head-like thing, and they kind of have that like sort of skin color and texture that E.T. has. They're kind of brownish and lumpy. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of us end up brownish and lumpy with time. <laughs> Some of us are already there. <laughs> so... Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, I don't really, you know, they, they could have done the, you know, the gangsters of Triumph Triskelion, you know, uh, like they could have made him a glowing 4, brain. I would bet that they didn't even consider having them look like glowing brains in a glass case. I would bet you're right. <laughs> but, you know, they could have done that too. You know, they could have been, or they could have, you know, they could have done the kind of old school sci-fi thing where they're like this tiny little insect or something. They're not imposing. Well, and I guess, you know, like their writing, they have radial symmetry. You know what I mean? Like they're yeah. arrayed in a circle as well, which I guess is maybe part of it. You know, we're not. So our, our 10 fingers line up. So maybe we write in lines there. The heptapods, uh, each of which has seven little fingers on the end of it. Uh, is arrayed in a circle, so maybe they see everything in a circle. Yeah, and they they uh, kind of and they they're also graffiti artists because whenever they spell a word, they kind of spray out this black mist. Yeah, I guess that's sort of the uh, I guess that's sort of the the squid aspect or the octopus aspect. Um, not quite sure how they built that giant spaceship, not having any bones. You know, they seemed <laughs> awful flexible. Not quite sure how they built a monstrous spaceship, but. Well, they know. they have a um, you know cartilage like a cuttlefish in the middle. <laughs> that must have been in the director's cut. It wasn't in the, <laughs> wasn't in the version I watched on Amazon Prime. So delicious. I read fried. that uh, by the way, the spaceship is based on the shape of an asteroid, fifteen Eunomia. Although if you look at fifteen Eunomia, it doesn't actually look very much like the the spaceship in this movie. I and the spaceship, by the way, is actually a saucer. I don't know yeah, if you saw that at the I, end. Yeah, you don't really get that sense for the whole movie because you're only really seeing it from the side. But it actually is, uh, it's really more of a saucer than sort of like a slice of apple. Yeah, at the end when it turned on its side, I said, ah, you've been playing with us. It was a saucer all along. What a joke. Um, 
I do like the the way that the the alien ships travel. Like at the end, they just sort of disappeared. You know, there was no whoosh, you know, or hyperspace or there wasn't light a bunch streaks of... of light. They just sort of yeah. vanished, and the mist hanging onto them just dissipated, which I thought was a clever way to do it. Yeah. Um, and the, the other so, thing, Forrest Whitaker. His character is not entire. He's not purely laughable. You know, he he doesn't have a big role really. But you know, they they use the they have a, they have to have a foil for the scientists. And so I actually, I mean, I actually think that number one, Forrest Whitaker didn't need to be in this movie. He does very little. He's sort of like a toned down version of a Martinet. You know, he has in order no, to evacuate. He has but, no. Yeah, yeah. And but he also, I, think, I think he has Bell's palsy. Did you see that? Like one of his eye, like his eyelid is droopy on one side. I'm not gonna look that up. But the other big problem I think is that Jeremy Renner doesn't need to be in this movie. I mean, he's supposed to be the super genius physicist who never, ever, ever talks about physics, and and really contributes very, very little to this entire story, other than the fact that spoiler, he turns out to be the father of the kid. Oh yeah. And but I mean, I mean, he's not even in the flash forwards because the father's absent. And then in the movie, he's sort of <laughs> basically absent also. Right, right. I mean, he's basically there to run after her over and over and be like, are you OK? Or what's going on to give her a chance to have some exposition uh-huh. um, in the book? Well, I should say this short story that this is based on story of your life by Ted Chiang. In the book, he plays a much bigger role. And the two of them are really opposite sides of the coin working together from both a sort of linguistic and a physics point of view to solve this puzzle. But they took almost all of that out in this movie. He does very little. And for example, like, you know, if you see him in Wind River or Hurt Locker, I mean, he's a really good actor, but he he doesn't do much in this at all. And the other problem I think that Jeremy Renner has in this movie is he has no chemistry with Amy Adams. None. It's there. You know, she's. She's sort of, you know, a million miles away and in her own head. And, you know, you don't get a sense of any relationship between them. And, for example, at the end of the movie, he says to her, like, you know, the most important thing about this whole experience wasn't meeting the aliens. It was meeting you. And he says it in such a flat and wooden way. Like, I just couldn't believe it for a second. Right. And and you can you know what else was incredibly uh, irritating to me? was you, you know how dave bowman's like um breathing sounds in the in 2001 right. are like this brilliant addition to the movie well here first of all you only hear amy adams breathing not anybody else and but even though the point of view does not stay focused on her like it does when like when dave bowman's gonna have to blast into the vacuum you know and like it it, it even though it, it doesn't, you don't stay with her, they switch back and forth and she's the only one doing that. And on top of that, she's constantly like whimpering. And they, must, they must have figured that they needed to make things seem perilous emotional. or emotional. Yeah. But Intense. They, but they're telling her to sort of, you know, whimper and it's, it's just goofy. Yeah, I don't know. It was, I don't know, for me, like, I think, you know, the movie is dry and has a very, very, you know, sort of like, it's it's an emotional tone, but it's emotions at a distance, you know, like it's not sadness about what's happening now. It's sadness about what's happening in another time, for example. Uh, but, you know, you still have to have some 
some center to anchor you emotionally in, as the movie goes. And, for example, Jeremy Renner and Forrest Whitaker really, really don't don't provide any of that. And she is left to carry the entire movie on herself, which she yep. largely does. But she carries it again in this sort of in the sort of this emotional way that we talked about that. I don't know. Like I, I ugh, it's, it was a little tough for me. I've seen this twice now. I saw it in the theaters. And I watched it again today in preparation for the podcast. And I did sort of feel the same way twice. Like for for aliens coming to the earth and speaking with us, like it's a surprisingly unemotional experience. You know, you, they don't generate a lot of excitement about the fact that extraterrestrials have arrived at 12 locations on the planet. Well, the whole movie is about what's inside her head. And there's no room for anybody else. I mean, there's no, there's no character development of anybody else. I mean, her, her kid is about as developed as, as, uh, her husband, future husband, whatever, past husband. Right. And there's no, there's just every other character is a, is a tiny shadow of the inside of her, her skull. That's the entire movie. But that leads to, I think, you know, there's a, payoff at the end of this movie but it's not a huge payoff you know it's sort of like you know instead of yeah or wow you're like huh all right <laughs> you know like that's kind of that's kind of the noise you make at the end of this movie you know well i mean it's it's the same kind of payoff you get when reading sartre you know it's like this existential you know it's like the myth of sisyphus you know she's like well we're all gonna die and i can see when it's gonna be but yeah whatever i'll i'll hear i'm gonna run around with my kid next to the lake right. eat this I'll sandwich keep, and i'm gonna it. keep i'm gonna keep pushing the rock up the hill you know that's yeah. that's what the movie is it's but, it, but again that's a that is is this is the slide worth the run right at for this is two full hours oh much like life maybe not <laughs> On that it's like note, that Woody good night, everybody. It's like, it's like that Woody Allen joke from Annie Hall. You know, like life is like the two old women who go to the restaurant, and one of them says the food here is terrible, and the other one goes, "Yeah, and the portions are so small." Yeah. <laughs> um, uh. So I was sort of struck by. I was thinking, like, I knew as I was watching this, I was like, "Well, we've seen non-linear aliens before," uh, and the two examples that came to my mind that I wouldn't be surprised if you thought of as well as one is the wormhole aliens in deep space nine are explicitly nonlinear. I mean, they talk about that repeatedly, especially in the pilot episode of deep space nine emissary. And then the other one is a book that you and I uh, read probably a dozen times as kid. Uh, what book am I going to say? Um, the one with the I mean, time travel kid. Uh... Are you thinking of the green futures of Tycho? I can't remember. Is no, that that's not one? what I was thinking of. But yeah. I was going to say Slaughterhouse Five. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. Slaughterhouse yeah. Five, right? The yeah. Billy Pilgrim connects with the Trial Famadorians, who are distinctly non-linear, and he spends the entire book bouncing between, you know, uh, his life on the spaceship, his life in uh, Dresden as a POW, and his sort of suburban life later on after the war. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and so you know, it goes. Two, two right. <laughs> well said. Um, but two big media properties that addressed very, very similar themes, you know, uh, in in more or less the same way. I mean, Vonnegut did it with a little bit of comedy. But but, for example, the Deep Space Nine episode I mentioned, Emissary, 
it's very similar to this. It's done with a little more Star Trek-y angst, and there's a lot more explosions, but uh, it reaches a lot of the same conclusions. And, for example, in that, Cisco has to come to terms with the death of his wife, Jennifer, which he sort of has to see and re-experience over and over and over as he interacts with the nonlinear aliens in the wormhole. I don't know. I thought that was sort of interesting that, you know, we'd seen that before a couple times. Now, this story was written in 98. This was based off, uh, I guess it's a novella or a short story in 1998. But Deep Space Nine premiered, I believe, in 94. So there's a good chance... Ted Chang had actually seen that episode, and my suspicion is he's probably read Slaughterhouse Five. I'm sure. I'm just amazed you that you kind of put <laughs> Deep Space Nine and Slaughterhouse Five, and that's kind of this on a level playing field. That's, well, I mean, you know, impressive. I mean, these are you know these are big mainstream sci-fi pieces that uh, you know were certainly out in the public domain. Um. There was a, there, I guess that there's a, a couple of nods to other movies in this, uh, and one of which is that um, one of the alien spaceships lands in Hokkaido, which is the site of the other machine in contact, and that was a little wink, wink uh, to contact. Um, I don't know. You know I don't want you to feel like I'm bashing this movie. I mean, I liked it. I watched it twice. I mean, I'm the one who suggested it for this podcast, but <clears throat> it's... Um, you know, it's it it left it left me a little bit flat at the end. And then, you know, the aliens after after two hours of this, the aliens mentioned basically in passing at the end, like, well, look, in another thousand years, we're going to need something you from you. So here's this thing now. Goodbye. You know, like why they need to send 12 ships for that and break the message up 12 ways if they just tell her at the end. Yep. That doesn't make any sense, although that does explain why they're there, which to me, was a moderately satisfying answer from that. Yeah, I mean, no, basically, then why not just because to them it's like ship. it's the same difference whether it's three thousand years later or now. But then why send twelve ships? Yeah, I know it doesn't make any sense. Maybe That's they got right. confused because they couldn't remember if they'd been there before. <laughs> I couldn't remember if they were there now. In the in the book, I think it's like a hundred plus ships that they send. Um, what was I going to say? Um, it also makes you wonder why why you would send ships with people or or heptapods, for example. Um, you know, why wouldn't you just send a probe that basically contains the language? Like, here you go, right? Because part of this is based on the idea. Like, to, I mean, you mentioned Sartre, so I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can uh, uh, stay academic with you there. You know, actually, you know what? I was wrong. It's Camus. Oh, see, yeah, you're tripping over your own underwear. That's the wrong, um, you know, the wrong existentialist. <laughs> but for example, the movie is really about, for example, you could say this is the Sapir Wharf hypothesis, right? The idea that language doesn't just uh, affect how you express yourself, it affects how you think. And for example, when she learns to speak heptapod, she can see across time and see see the world and, and the universe non-linearly, right, right. right? So that's that's part of the that's part of the undercurrent of this movie, which I actually think is a really neat idea that they could have explored a little bit more. But that having been said, why wouldn't you just send an unmanned probe, right? Or an artificial intelligence that just would teach whoever found this thing on Earth, here's how to speak heptapod. How about like a VHS tape with a, like an Berlitz <laughs> booklet? 
<laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I was just uh, I was just reading about the Voyager, Voyager one and two, and you know, there's the Voyager. The, like Pioneer had the plaque, but Voyager had the record that yeah, has images and record. audio on it. But you know, like many people have asked, like, well, how are they going to have a record player? But the Voyager actually can, like, the re- the actual disc contains instructions on how to build a record player and contains an actual stylus. Uh, <laughs> So like, but you know, all kidding aside, why wouldn't intelligent aliens do the same thing? You know what I mean? It would be a lot more, a lot more efficient than sending, you know, two heptapods per ship and, you know, 12 ships. Well, you know, I mean, there, there are no, I mean, you, you, you just have to give them all that stuff because it doesn't, you're right. I mean, it, it, there are a lot of things that don't make any sense in the movie, but Right. I mean, so, time tra- time travel and nonlinearity doesn't make sense, and that's the reason that um, that's what what Vonnegut's so good at because the absurdity of the situation is constantly at the forefront in Vonnegut. Whereas in this movie, it's basically the tone. There's no absurdity. There's only uh, heaviness, and with a little, you know, there's a feeling of heaviness with a little redemption in that you know kind of existential way at the end yeah but there's there's no there's no absurdity at all it does make you wonder though like so for example like in in uh in terms of interstellar travel and interspecies communication like the idea of sending an unmanned probe that could basically do your work for you it's referred to as a bracewell probe uh and for example the monolith in 2001 is considered a bracewell probe or the <clears throat> the Resigan spaceship in the, the Next Generation episode, The Inner Light, where Picard gets the flute, uh, is considered a Bracewell probe. Like, it does sort of make a little more sense. I mean, I understand that for the movies, we want to, you know, have the aliens come down so we can physically interact with them. But, uh, you know, it, it, it as we sort of have more knowledge of how, you know, interstellar travel and interstellar communication might work, it does sort of beg the question, like, would it really be this way? Well, it would have been a lot cheaper if they made the thing, and you know they just had to build a record player. <laughs> I you feel know. like your idea of it being a VHS tape, yeah, and a booklet. Um, and you know, I mean, you know, the aliens could have set the VCR to E, to, sorry, to uh, EP before they set it, so you'd have the highest picture quality. <laughs> right? Remember they those SP, LP, and EP? They would have had to send <laughs> a really like a ex, way more videotapes, though. <laughs> I mean, they're probably pretty um, frugal if they could travel faster than light. Um, what was I going to say? I remember, like, when we were like in high school, like if something really important was on TV that we wanted to watch, we would set the VCR for EP. <laughs> wait, was it? Wait, maybe I no, think it was I got SP. It SP. SP. Yeah, because it was short Standard play, long play. play, extended play. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, good lord. Yeah, because you got two hours, four hours, or six hours out of that. Uh, a TDK 120 tape. Oh man, we are dating ourselves. Jesus. Um, I don't know, but you know, it shows you too, how hard it is to do a serious aliens come to earth movie. You know what I mean? I mean, you can do it for action. You can do it for hard. You can do it in sort of a thoughtful, pensive way. Like, but it's hard to do. Like, it's hard to kind of hit all the right notes and pull it off. Yep. And Stanley Kubrick, once again, triumphs. I mean, his, you know, his, I mean, granted, the movie ends with an embryo floating around the earth, which is a little bit on the weird side, but, <laughs> but, you know, uh, 
I mean, he, but yeah, but I mean, and this movie owes a lot to 2001, you know, and especially in terms does. of pacing. Yeah, no, it's true, but especially this movie because there's some similar stuff here. Although in 2001, the monolith aliens certainly don't need anything from us, nor will they ever. Whereas here, the heptapods are going to need something from us in a thousand years. Um, I thought, by the way, that the title was a pun. Uh, I think there's two arrivals. One, right? One is the arrival of the aliens, and the other is the arrival of her her daughter. Right? Yeah. I thought that that was a little bit of a pun there. I actually think the original title's better. I what think was the title of the short story again? Story of Your Life. Oh, Ted, yeah. Ted Chiang. So I, I read that. That was the original title of the movie, and all the test audiences hated it. Right. Well, so that's how you know it's good. <laughs> right. That's how you know they should have left it in. Right. I mean, Arrival, it's so... You cannot have a blander title, though, than Arrival. Right. I mean, but, it could be about an airport. <laughs> or a bus. <laughs> You're um, right. You're right. right. But, I'm, I'm thinking too upscale or taxi. But again, it you know, the one word title with the poster sort of conveys a lot more. So like, for example, we haven't talked about Annihilation. You know, Annihilation was a much better poster than it was a movie, but it was a pretty good poster. You know what I mean? It was a pretty good trailer. Like, like it, it worked a little bit better. Right. Uh, kind of like as, THX as a, 1178. 1138. Right. 38, yeah, as a concept yeah. to, to get you uh, into the theater. But, you know. I don't know it's hard to do a it's hard to do a serious alien movie, but you know it, it's funny just to to jump forward. You know he went straight from working on this to to Blade Runner twenty forty nine, the director, which we've also talked about on this podcast. And you know you could see a lot of, you know, I mean we we were fairly critical of Blade Runner twenty forty nine for its issues with pacing mm-hmm. uh, and things like that. And I think that you know he made some of the same mistakes in this. I mean the pacing in this was also. You know, it was slow. It is really slow. I think I actually like this movie better. I like this movie better than uh, Blade Runner 2049 as well. But, um, you know, like they're both a little bit of a slog. And I think Blade Runner 2049 is like two and a half hours. It's significantly longer than this. Hmm. But I don't know. I mean, look, you know, uh, you're not going to you're not going to hit a home run unless you swing for the fences. And they swung for the fences with this thing. And, you know, they did pull off. A good serious movie, and you know, it made a lot of people's top ten list that year. I don't think I would have put it on my top ten list for 2016, but for a lot of people, this was you know, a lot of people felt that this was one of the best films that they saw that year, and it really resonated with a lot of people. I bet that you could have made this thing as a pretty low, like a kind of an indie, low budget indie, because you you could, you know, as you suggested, I think you're right. You could scrap a lot of the fancy. Um, window dressing and because the movie is such an interior movie um, you could still make you could still take out all the dramatic elements and the plot elements and do them on the cheap and spend almost very little on special effects yeah although i don't think this movie cost a ton i mean they own they made Mm. this whole movie for less than 50 million which for a big sci-fi movie is not a lot these days so i mean there's only a handful of effects that they use over and over and over again it's really the heptapods and uh the ship and that's 90 percent of the effects in the whole movie yep there's a couple explosions or whatever that's it and then you know right there's some sets but i I think you know they i think but they could probably they could have done it as an indie. Like this movie yeah. could have been made as an indie, uh, a really low budget indie. Yeah, no, I agree. Probably I would agree. have been about as good. 
Well, I mean, the cast is essentially three people, right? Plus the heptapods. In the book, by the way, in the movie, the heptapods are called Abbott and Costello, mm -hmm. which is a play on the what's uh, the who's on first, right? The idea that the whole who's on first debate has no beginning and no ending. Mm -hmm. So th that's why they're called Abbott and Costello in the movie. Although in the book, they have different uh, names. I can't remember what their names were in the movie. Sorry, in the book. But in the book, they have totally different names. Um, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, I'll be curious how this movie is regarded in 10 years. Like, is this movie going to be forgotten in 10 years or are people still going to be discussing it or talking about it in, in a decade? That'll be interesting to see. It's still pretty recent. Hmm. You know, I don't know the answer to that. And, uh, I'm not kidding. Uh, but, uh, this director's next film is Dune. Really? Yep. He's uh, he's doing his version of Dune uh, per a couple huh. of articles I saw and uh, Wikipedia. So is, is he like Mister Sci-Fi? Well, I mean, he's uh, he's done a couple of serious sci-fi movies. I mean, he did um, this and Blade Runner, and he's moved on to Dune. He also did Sicario, which I love. Yeah, Although I like Sicario. He, I don't believe he is had a hand in the. The second Sicario film, which I don't know if it's out yet. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't realize who made Sicario at the time when I saw it. But before Blade Runner, that's the only movie of his that I'd seen. Um, I haven't seen his other movies, but um, Sicario was good. Sicar, I thought actually, I think Sicario just Imho. Sicario is his is his best film. I mean, Sicario. Really, I think they got sort of the drama right, the suspense right, the action right, and it had a great payoff at the end. Mm -hmm. Like that movie had a really, really, really good ending. And and there was a lot of clever stuff in there. You know, you think that movie is about Emily Blunt, and it's not. It's about Benicio Del Toro. Like about mm -hmm. three quarters of the way through the movie, you realize the movie isn't about her. You know, like she's sort of the, the pawn in this big game, and, and she can't outthink anybody. Yeah. Uh, and she doesn't, you know, and you keep thinking, well, it's Emily Blunt, so she'll do something heroic at the end. And in the end, she doesn't. And she gets kind of outplayed by everybody. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I really, really like it. I also like I like Josh Brolin sort of playing Josh Brolin, and you know, sort of like swaggery tough guy. And that scene of them at the border crossing is it's it's got to be one of the best movie scenes in the past. I don't know, five or seven years. <clears throat> yeah. And she's, well, she's also very good. Oh, I like Emily Blunt a lot. Um, well, I don't know. Anything else on Arrival? No. I'm so since hoping. we haven't started discussing it yet. <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, as soon as the podcast is over, I'm going to go watch it. I yeah, when I, when I saw it in the theater, they showed the trailers in the middle. It was really the, – the opening – the end credits showed first. It was really strange. I'm going to have gastroenteritis yeah. for during our next podcast, by the way. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> oh my god alright anything else or should we wrap it there no, I think we can wrap it alrighty thanks everybody and uh, we'll be back uh, next week thanks guys <laughs> <laughs>